0: old-timey crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Amber. And we are here this week with your historical and some less historical true crime. We are doing a little something this week that uh, if it is successful and well-received, or maybe even if it's not, will be our end of the month show from here on out. And it is called, Amber, actually you came up with the title. Why don't you tell them? Timey after timey. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Brilliant titling. And what we're doing is one of us is going to tell the other a historical true crime tale. The other is going to tell a modern true crime tale. So that's where you get your timey after timey. And they'll have a common thread that weaves them together in some way. I have a whole spreadsheet, word doc, something, (laughs) with... (laughs) I actually have a table in there with some older crimes and some newer crimes, and then the thing that ties them together, and there's, like, workplace homicide and patricide and such, which, you should know, I'm not going to do the whole Patreon pitch this week, but our patrons did get to hear a version of this, not this particular episode, but a version where we did patricide, I believe it was the May Extra Extra, if memory serves. But lots of good stuff over there. Yes, indeed. Lots of good stuff. Link is in the show notes, patreon.com slash And so we tried it out over there, and now we're going to do a whole new one here. The links will sometimes be crime-related. Sometimes they will be other stuff, like maybe geography. Us both being Pennsylvanians. We decided to go with Pennsylvania Crimes for this inaugural on the regular feed, Timey After Timey. So Amber has an old Timey Crimey that she's going to give us. And then I have a new Timey Crimey. And then after that, we'll discuss some stuff about both cases. So Amber, what have you got? I'm very excited.
1: I am going to tell you about Irene Crawford Schroeder. Okay. Okay. So, she was born February 17th, 1909 in Benwood, West Virginia. Her father was Joseph Crawford. Her mother was Martha Kilgore. Hell of a name. Mm. She was the youngest of 15 kids. Oh, my. Her poor mother. Oh, dear. Well, our mother went and died when she was nine, so uh, she wasn't around for all of it. Probably tired from pushing out 15 kids. Yes. Yes, Probably. Um, they were a very, very poor family. They essentially lived in a shack. Mm. So a family of 17 living in a shack. And Irene was referred to as Goldilocks growing up. Uh-huh. And, and she was a blonde, beautiful, very well-behaved child. Um, but unfortunately, after her mother died, um, she, she did it, mm, go off the rails a little. Uh-oh. So, um, she she actually tried to kill herself right after her mother had died. Oh, my gosh. She was nine. She also had seven of her brothers and sisters that had died uh-uh. from disease, knife fights, ambushed or killed if they survived infancy, which they didn't all. So, this was this was a time of bootleggers. And so, if you had stumbled upon a bootlegger, sometimes they would off you. They didn't care if you were young. They, they didn't care because they can't get caught. Um... And being very poor to start with, you didn't have a leg to stand on a lot of the time. Uh, After her mother died, it's said that she was apparently pretty abused uh, verbally, sexually, physically, and mentally. At 10, she went to live with a sister, and she fell and hit her head on the sidewalk. Uh Uh-oh. She had an awesome scar and said that she was plagued by migraines after that.
0: Yeah, and head injuries are never a good sign. I don't know if she's the victim or the perpetrator in this crime. Head injuries
1: are usually a pretty bad sign. Yeah,
0: head injury is is starting to make that that line between victim and perpetrator on my scale inch
1: towards perpetrator. (laughs) So at the ripe old age of 15, she married Homer Schrader.
0: That's a very Pennsylvania name. I, I know that she was born in West Virginia, but that is a name I've encountered a lot in Pennsylvania.
1: So she and Homer had a little boy about a year later. They named him Homer Elmer Schrader. Oh, my. Uh, hmm. I have, I have some, some questions about the decision-making here. Well, okay, so here's the thing. Irene never called her son Homer. She hated the name. She called him Donnie. Okay. And then she left her husband and changed her son's name to Donnie and changed their last name eventually away from Schrader. But she, she changed his name to Donnie, and she moved to Wheeling, West Virginia, where she became a waitress. It's there that she met Walter Glenn Dagu. Dagu.
0: What's the spelling on that? I'm curious.
1: D-A-G-U-E.
0: Yeah. You could go with dagu, deju. There's several different options there. I feel like you can't win either way, so go with your gut, which seems to be dagu.
1: Yeah. Well, as far as... He's a piece of shit, in my opinion. So, um... So you don't care if you mispronounce his name? I don't care what his name is. Walter is a dick. Um... (laughs) Walter is a dick. Sorry to all Walters out there. So this is how they met. He hit Irene with his car. Oh
0: my God. What? Yes. That's that's the, the very opposite of a meet cute.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's a meet crime. But <laughs> he, he circled back and, and helped her up to make sure she was okay. Well, at least there's that. And eventually became her lover. However, he was married with two kids.
0: Oh no, Irene. And he
1: was also a Sunday school teacher. Oh! A car salesman. Okay. And his wife was a teacher. And so for a long time, he and Irene were lovers, which. I just have to back up to the Sunday school teacher
0: and car salesman. First yes. of all, those are two double we have whammy, different impressions of. But the mm-hmm. car salesman, I just have to wonder if he used his first meeting with Irene as a sales pitch. After that, <laughs> as Could in, be you know, look at this car.
1: I hit a whole woman with it. Not a dent to be seen. <laughs> Not just a whole woman. I'm gonna I'm gonna read my favorite description of Irene. Oh, okay. <laughs> And we know that a lot of these old-timey papers love, love to describe women, but this is by far the weirdest description I've ever seen. Oh, I am so intrigued. Her five-foot-three body was square and boxy, reflecting her Polish-German heritage, but lumpy in the right places like what? a sack of potatoes. What? What, is what that? she may have lacked in charm and culture was replaced with a high-spirited great stock of vitality.
0: Lumpy in all the right places like a sack of potatoes.
1: Uh, but it, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I don't know either. Like, I have never looked at a sack of potatoes like, mmm, look at the lumps on that. <laughs> but apparently, Walter was like, mm hmm Potato, Irene. I, I also think that maybe the writer of that had a little potato fetish. <laughs> I don't even. I don't even know. Mm, like, this woman looks like a sack of potatoes. I like it. Lumpy in all the right places, like a sack of potatoes. That is that is
0: definitely the weirdest description I've heard of a woman's body, and it's it's appalling and weird and strange, and I am. It's unforgettable though. It's unforgettable. It really is.
1: And I was like I have to, I have to include this. This is amazing. I've never heard a woman described this way. But um she was also described as um pretty when she put in the effort. Oh. Yeah. That's I, a dip. Yeah, yeah. That's me. But you know, I saw some pictures of her and I think she was actually pretty pretty cute. Um I I have that feeling with the
0: way that women were frequently described back in the day. And you get this feeling that she just must be
1: hideous. And you look at her and you're like, no, nah, she's pretty normal. Yeah. She's average. Yeah. No, but I don't know. I, I, Whatever. But anyway, her and Walter become lovers. They, she gets pregnant. Mm-hmm. And he swears up and down he's going to leave his wife for her. And they have a little boy and he only lives for two days. Oh. But... He did eventually leave his wife for her. Oh. After this happened. Shocking, I know. Yeah, I'm shocked. He sent her away to have the baby, and the baby didn't make it, and she came back, and they, they kind of got back together. And he did eventually leave his wife. But when he did that, his ties to both his job and the Sunday school were because of his wife. So he lost his job. Oh. that That is a big sacrifice to
0: make. So... Walter was a dick, you said, but maybe he really did love her, or at least in his own way.
1: I don't know. I guess we're going to find out. We're going to find out. <laughs> okay. We're going to find out. And I guess they did love each other, but I still hate Walter. <laughs> um, so we're going we're gonna to fast forward now to December 27th of 1929. This is in Butler, Pennsylvania.
0: Oh boy, Amber just yeah. uh, made a face and a sigh that uh, I don't know what I'm in for, but I'm here for
1: it. Yep. Okay. So, so just to give you a little background here in, in Butler, Pennsylvania, and this is 1929. So, we're talking Depression era. Mm-hmm. We're talking an area where it's like coal mines and steel mills and a lot of people out of work, a lot of people struggling.
0: And I can't remember exactly when Black Friday hit the stock market. I think, no, Black Tuesday. Monday? Black Day of the Week. Black <laughs> Day of the <laughs> Week. Black Day of the Week at the stock market. But I feel like it was very close to then. This is December of 1929. I know it was in 29. Yeah. I feel like it was towards the end of the year. So this might be the very beginning of the Depression when there is a lot of turmoil and uncertainty. Like think beginning of the pandemic.
1: Yes, yes. And and it was hitting this area really, really hard. Mm. There was also a few different mine disasters. There was a story in the book, actually, of a mine disaster that Irene had witnessed. And she was watching people pull the men out of the mine. And then she watched two of her brothers go through the pockets of the dead men and steal all their money. Oh, my God. That sentence went in a completely different Not direction Not the way than you I thought expected. it was going to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think she actually had run down there cuz her dad worked in the mines and thank god he was unharmed but then watched her brothers stealing for the family from the pockets of the dead men and so that might have helped form how Irene turned. So that that was in her youth. That was in her youth. Okay. So now in, in 1929 Irene and Walter are very poor. Mm-hmm. Walter has lost his job. Irene was only working as a waitress. She's a single mother. And they go to Butler, Pennsylvania. They rob a grocery store. So it's Walter, Irene, and Irene's older brother, Tom. They rob a a grocery store in Butler, PA, and they escape the scene of the crime. Now, we're going to shoot over to another character here. We're going to talk about Brady Paul. Okay. Brady Paul, blonde, good-looking young man, six-foot-two, well-built, square jaw, strong chin. <laughs> the descriptions are just right? something. <laughs> so he had enlisted with the police January of 1926 when he was 20 years old. He was from Hickory, Pennsylvania, the youngest child born. Um, his father had died when he was 10, and he'd been on the force for about four years. But he was a very, very good cop. Brady was said to have one handicap. He would not pull his gun unless he was sure. So early in his career, this had managed to get him kidnapped and then thrown out of a vehicle. Oh dear. Because he wasn't a hundred percent that these were the men he was looking for. Oh. So he's, he's a very good cop, but he wants to make sure he doesn't, he wanted to be careful with the authority that he had been given. That is a very good quality. It can be a dangerous quality. For him, yes. yes. Absolutely. <laughs> um, So, shortly before noon, he was notified that there was a robbery at the corner grocery store at 300 North Main Street in Butler. The Butler Motor Police had called Corporal Brady Paul at the headquarters of State Motor Patrol to let them know that they were headed towards Newcastle. So... Most of the officers of the state motor patrol lived in the Colonial Hotel in Newcastle. The headquarters was on the third floor. Most of the officers lived in the hotel, so they were Whoa. all right there. That's a really interesting setup. Well, it helped with them responding quickly. Oh, for sure. Because they were at headquarters. You didn't have to send a telegram or send somebody to tell somebody anything. You were there. So they, all the officers were actually friends with the owner of the hotel, Paul and Molly Crowell. Molly had a collection of all the officers. She had photographs of each officer on the force. And actually a few days before this robbery, Brady had given Molly his picture, saying, you'll have this after I'm gone. Oh, I have a bad feeling about Brady. Yep. So after the call came in, Brady grabbed his hat. He yelled to Ernest Moore, come on, let's go. And they raced downstairs to the back of the hotel where their motorcycle with sidecar was. Now, what time of year is it in Pennsylvania? December. Oh, my God. How freaking cold that must have been. That is... I... I
0: give an involuntary shiver when I see somebody riding a motorcycle in 50-degree weather.
1: Yeah. So this is December in Pennsylvania. It is probably in the, I'm going to say, 30s. And if you're lucky. If you're
0: lucky. It
1: might even be (laughs) snowing. Uh, Oh, man. Yeah. That's a bad transportation choice. (laughs) Right. So Ernie was kind of the opposite of of Brady. Ernie was dark-haired. He was slightly built and nervous. Who was in the Ernie is no, is in the sidecar. Is in the sidecar. Okay, all right. Yeah. Brady is is the boss man, good cop. Ernie is uh, the, the nervous skinny cop in the sidecar. So you have nervous and hesitant to shoot unless he's hundred percent sure. Yeah. Good, good team, t- good team. Good team, good team, yeah. So Ernie had also been on the joined the force about four years prior. They were about the same age. Ernie had a brother named Chester. He was a native of Woodbury, Pennsylvania. And during his time in Beaver Falls, he'd met a stenographer, Marie Wenger, and just got married in September. Oh. So he was a newlywed. Um, He also had a father that died when he was very young. He was six. His dad died in a mine accident in West Virginia. And his mother, Mrs. Carper, lived with Ernie's oldest brother. So Ernie had been raised by his grandparents in Altoona, PA. <laughs> Represent, that's, that's Represent.
0: right over there. <laughs> and I, we buy all of our cars from Blue Knob and Altoona in this family. So,
1: <laughs> But it said, even though a lot of people said Ernie lacked the confidence to be a cop, he still wanted to be a cop. Mm-hmm. He'd previously worked in like shops. He even worked as a teacher at one point. So, the two officers motor down 422. (laughs) Anybody around Pennsylvania knows exactly where we are. Yep. They get about three miles outside of Newcastle. And they set up a roadblock because this is the direction that this car is heading. We're going to stop all the cars. So, they stop every car that's headed that way. They're looking for two, two men and a woman. They let a few cars pass after checking. Like, there was two school teachers and one. And so, not the people they're looking for. They let them go. And then a green Chevrolet coach with Ohio plates pulls up. Brady walks up to the driver's side and there's a man with a mustache wearing a dark coat and a light gray suit. There's a well-dressed woman sitting in the passenger seat. A sweet cherub-looking boy was standing in the front seat between them. And then there was another young man in the back seat.
0: Child vehicle safety rules being a little more lax. <laughs>
1: car seats didn't exist
0: back then. Yeah, they weren't a thing. Barely seatbelts,
1: if that. So this kind of throws them, because they're looking for, for two men and a woman. Mm. And they find two men and a woman, but also a child. And nobody had ever seen this child. So they're like, I don't know if this is the right
0: car. And I'm seeing some lack of 100% certainty on Brady's part.
1: Yeah, he's, he's not certain. So he, he asks the driver for identification while Ernie walks around the back of the vehicle and gets the plate number, just in case. Mm-hmm. So, okay, good teamwork so far, good teamwork. So, the the plate number, they even gave me this, D57461. Wow, that's, that's very detailed on the part of whoever wrote that. Yeah, I was impressed. So, Brady is a little nervous, though. And even though he doesn't like to pull his gun, he takes the license case from the driver and he has his gun underneath it and he's trying to hide his gun. Mm. But he's pretty sure that these are the people he's looking for. So he has his gun out and he's trying to to hide it and he asked the driver to get out of the car because he's very suspicious. So Walter gets out of the car but also pulls his own gun. Oh no. He turns around and goes, Irene, get away with Donnie. Hmm. What does Irene do? What do you think? I'm going to go with Pulls her own gun. Scrambles out of the car, pulls her own gun, shoots right at Brady. I'm upset that she did that, but I'm happy that I'm right. Yeah. It's, I'm very conflicted. Conflicted, yeah. <laughs> so she hits him in the arm. She orders him to put his own gun away and get his hands up. Brady is like, Ernie, pull your gun! <laughs> And so Ernie finally did after st- just standing there dumbfounded for a second of like, <laughs> what just happened?
0: Poor dumb Ernie. I'm sorry to Ernie, but he's just he's just so not really prepared for any of no, this. No, he's
1: really not. So he does pull his gun and he shoots at Walter and he misses. Oh no. So then Irene starts shooting at Ernie. <laughs> oh no. Ernie tries to move towards the front of the car. So Tom, and still in the back seat. Start shooting at Ernie. Shot him in the nose. Is this, like, shot Mussolini in the nose or actually... Shot him in the nose. He Ernie jerks back. He gets a shot off at Walter. And so years later, on his deathbed, Ernie actually said that he secretly thought that he might have missed Walter and hit Brady. <laughs> So Walter, deciding that Irene has Brady covered, turns around and also starts shooting at Ernie, grazed his head. So he has a scalp wound and he's been hit in the nose. Oh my goodness. And now he's unconscious. Well, yeah, one would be. Tom fires again over the baby's head (gasps) in the front seat. No, Tom, no. And this is his nephew, mind you. So it shoots over the kid's head through the windshield. And so Donnie, being a four-year-old child, screams, Mama! So Irene, thinking that her son might have just gotten shot by her brother, jumps back in the car, like, covering her son's body with her own and, like, feeling him for wounds, checking for blood. And then she's like, Are, are, you, are you hurt? No, Mommy. And so then she's like, all right, well, i got things to do. Um, so Mommy's busy, baby. We're in the middle of something, dude. If you're not hurt, don't scream like somebody's cutting you. Brady, at this point, has twisted his body. He's holding his left side with his right hand. He moves backwards as he's still firing. At this point, he is now bleeding from his arms, legs, and side. He's oh been God. shot many times. Oh, my God. And he's losing blood quickly, but he's still upright, which is amazing to me. Moore is just laying on the ground. He's out cold. He gets grazed in the head, and he passes out. Oh, Ernie. Ah, Ernie. Oh, Ernie. So Walter pushes Ernie's body away from the front of the car, grabs Ernie's gun, continues to shoot at Brady Paul, and then Glenn and Irene jump back in the car, still shooting at Brady. Another bullet hit him in the stomach, knocking him down as the car is speeding away. He got back up, leaning against a telephone pole, and emptied his revolver at the car. He hit the car and the rear window several
0: times. You can, One thing you can say about Brady, he may be hesitant unless he's 100% sure, but once he's 100% sure, that man is dedicated. Falls to the <laughs> wall. Yes.
1: You cannot lay that man down. He will sit back up. So so little Donnie, who was in the car at the time, later said that he had never seen a bullet go through a car windshield before. <laughs> well, being four, yeah. one would hope not. One would hope not. He
0: is along for the ride
1: after a robbery his mother committed, so he, he might have seen some shit. Well, and he he also said that he remembered his mo- his mom trying to treat a wound that was big on one of the men's side. Mm. And he said it looked like a chunk of flesh that had been torn out. Because it was a gunshot wound, mm, little Donnie. Yeah. Oh, my. Yeah. So, wow. so after the shooting, a truck driven by a gentleman named George Book pulled up. So, George, smart guy, this George was. George heard the shooting as he was driving up the road. Stops the car, puts it in reverse, goes back down the road backwards. He was like, no, not today. Not today. And so he waits out of eyesight until the shooting stops, and he waits a few minutes, and then he goes back up the road because he wasn't trying to get shot. Yeah. Good, job, Good job, George. George. is a smart fella. Oh, my. So um, he, he drove up the road. He sees both officers now on their feet. Oh. Both of them have gotten up, but they're covered in blood. They're visibly shaken. And so George pulls up and he's like, get in. And Brady jumps in and he's like, get me to town quick. I've been shot up. <laughs> you think? George is probably like, yes, I did notice that. Yeah, and, and George is like, yeah, you've, you're shot at least in your leg and your arm that I can see. <laughs> so another car starts to go by. And George Book stops the other car. And then gets Ernie in the other car and is like, all right, follow me, let's go. Oh, wow. G- George is a
0: take charge kind of dude after he uh, reverses and then comes back. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I,
1: he's he's honestly, he's, he's a good dude, but like, He's, he's just driving his truck and he hears gunshot. He's like, I'm not driving in that. That's, mm-mm. Yeah. yeah, I would back away, too. I'm yeah. not going to lie.
0: I would absolutely back away. I would come back once the gunshots were done, yeah. just exactly like he did. But I would I would fumble a bit. I might put it in neutral and then gun it by accident because I'm a shaky kind of person. <laughs> but I would eventually find my way to reverse and get the hell out of there
1: for so, a little while. So now George has his truck and another guy's car and is like, all right, to town. So, they head back towards Newcastle. Now, mind you, they're about three miles outside of Newcastle. Okay. So, inside the truck, Brady is talking. But as they got closer to town, he was talking less and less. Oh. So, they went straight to the Crown Hotel, which, again, is where the headquarters was, yelling to get an ambulance. They they have uh, the Crowls called doctors. They arranged for an ambulance. Officers rushed them all to Jameson Memorial Hospital. Molly Crowl, one of the owners that, that has the pictures... Followed the ambulance while John went and told all their fellow officers what had happened. Mm-hmm. So Molly was actually in the operating room with Brady. Oh, my. She went in and she, she's like, do you know me? And he's like, yes, that's you, Molly. I'm so glad. I, I'm glad you came so someone would be here who knows me. Oh. I'm going to die, Molly. Oh. And she's like, no, no, you're not. And he goes, yes, I am. I feel it here and pressed on the wound on his stomach. Tell the boys I did my duty. Tell them I did the best I could. Tell them to get those who got me because they surely got me right. Wow. And then ask Molly to see his mother and give her a kiss goodbye for him. Oh, he had been hit at least seven times. Holy shit. Yeah. <sighs> wow. So, Walter, Irene, and Irene's brother Tom all escaped and went into hiding, but they still have this four year old with them. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you do? You can't bring a child when you're on the lamb. Even though you shouldn't have brought him to a fucking robbery, (laughs) right? Oh my god! But whatever, you have you you raise an excellent point. Yeah, you know, get a babysitter maybe. Well, and that's exactly what Irene decided to do. Oh, okay, all right. She's basically like, we are we just shot cops. Like they're going to never stop looking. Mm -hmm. We can't have a child with us. He he could have been shot. So she goes to her dad's house. She sees that the lights are on. She puts him on his doorstep and runs away. Doesn't even see her own father. Just leaves her child at his doorstep. Ding dong ditch. Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, it's it's before the days of cell phones where you could be like, hey, just shot somebody. I'm going to leave my son with you for a few days until things cool down. Um, so... Oh, poor grandfather too, because he didn't know what to do. He wasn't expecting a small child. Yeah. Like at this point, he's he's an older gent. He's already raised his own kids, and uh, he uh, opens the door to find a four year old there. It was cold. It was snowy, and um, he, <laughs> Grandpa Crawford is pretty cute. He he was like, all right, Donnie, let me just figure out some stuff. So if you stare at this pineapple long enough, <laughs> a pony will appear. <laughs> And so Donnie did, <laughs> and Grandpa went to, like, try to talk with everybody else to figure out what the hell's going on. Grandpa has raised some kids
0: and knows how to distract them. Just stare
1: at this pineapple. That is
0: hilarious. That's like when I used to babysit and I would have the, the kids play, play graveyard. But <laughs> Who can be quiet the longest while laying right? down and being exactly. very, very still? I probably damaged those children in some
1: way. I might buy a pineapple. <laughs> yeah. So then Irene changes her last name to Schroeder instead of Schrader. Interesting. Because she's trying to muddy any trail that she might leave behind. I mean, it's... Okay, on the one hand, it's pretty
0: close. So anyone who yeah. stumbles upon that is going to automatically think, if they're looking for her, hmm, maybe this could be the same person. Either they changed it or they could be a misspelling. But on the other hand... When you use a false name, you are supposed to use something that you will habitually respond to. Yeah. So... You want to stay
1: pretty close. It's both dumb and smart. So... they, The police, some other police, later find the car abandoned. A purse was left behind. Ooh. In that purse was a picture of little Donnie. So this actually led police to find Donnie at Grandpa Crawford's house on New Year's Eve. They managed to track him down to
0: Grandpa Crawford's house. I guess tracking... Oh, how, I'm so confused as to how they made that link, but that's amazing.
1: That, that was left out. I don't know how they made the link, but they identified the boy, and they're like, well, if she's on the run, maybe they took the child to a family member. And so they they found the little boy at Grandpa's house. Okay. And, and Grandpa tells the story of, like... I, don't, I never even saw my daughter. There, I heard noises outside. I opened the door to check it out, and here's my four-year-old grandson just hanging out. So I set him down in front of a pineapple, like you do. Like you do. But I don't
0: know. Now we have screen time. Back then, they had pineapple time.
1: <laughs> Next best thing. Yeah. Uh, so he, he explained that he and his housekeeper were just sitting in front of the fire one evening the prior week. They heard a noise, and, and then they found their grandson alone. So then they interview the little boy. Oh. And the little boy tells police that his mother had fired the shot that killed Officer Brady Paul. Snitch. (laughs) And then he even named the two men that his mother was with. Nobody told this kid that snitches get stitches.
0: You you need to indoctrinate them from a young age. You need to start, like, around six months.
1: Well, and and these are the names he called them. Glenn, Dougie, hmm, and Uncle Tom. Okay. So Walter Glenn Dougie, I guess he just called him Glenduggy. Okay. So Donnie, uh, oh, Donnie. I love Donnie. I have lots of Donnie stories. <laughs> so this testimony actually later helped to convict his mother oh, because wow. he's, he verbatim said, I saw my mama shoot a cop. <gasps> Uncle Tom shot another one in the head. He shot right through the windshield. Because this little boy is not holding back. He's he's four. He does not care. And he's like, this is what I saw. Do you want to hear about it? Oh, you're paying attention to me? I'm going to tell you everything. I bet the, the police told him, hey, if you tell us what happened, we'll give you a pineapple that'll turn into a pony. Right. <laughs> so, and I, I love that the newspaper actually said a woman hunt was underway. Oh, <laughs> So there was a reward for over $3,000, which back then is huge money for anybody. Yeah. For Irene's capture. Um, Little Donnie started giving media interviews. Oh, my God. He loved it. He loved all the attention that he was getting from it. And it said every time the little boy told the story... It was more detailed and dramatic than the time before. Oh, he's a natural storyteller. He's a natural storyteller. He loves it. He loves the attention. His mother just abandoned him. Of course he loves the attention. Yeah, I'm bonding with Donnie. (laughs) But, um, so Irene was given several nicknames by the press, including Trigger Woman, Iron Irene, Irene of the Six Shooters, Animal Woman, the Blonde Tiger, the Blonde Bandit, and my favorite... Two-Gun Girl. Two-Gun Girl. I like Iron Irene. Iron Irene is nice, but it, it doesn't roll off the tongue. I feel like if you have yeah. had one too many, you're not saying that. You would think alliteration would make it better,
0: but in that case... Not it's with a little, eyes. It's a little too much. <laughs> not with eyes and not with two IRs in a row. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. So not my favorite, but I love Two-Gun Girl, which is actually the name on my notes. Nice. So that was one of my favorites. So the trio, Irene, Walter Glenn, and Tom, her brother... Flea. Glenn had been shot many times. Once in his hip, once in his calf. A bullet had gone through the hat that was still on his head. Oh, that's a cartoon moment. It really is. I didn't think that ever happened. And apparently he had another bullet in his left trouser leg. It, there was a powder burn and a bullet hole, but no wound. This man is Swiss cheese. It, oh, damn near. But he's only been hit twice. So he's driving. Irene is treating his wounds. They had already gotten rid of the little boy, and they decide that they need to split up. Obviously, as you do when you're fleeing the police. I mean, yes, yes. So Tom takes the original car, and Irene and Glenn steal a different car. Irene, at this point, has put a tourniquet on Glenn's leg to stop the bleeding, and she said... Trouble will knit us together better than any marriage license. It is going to be hard to make people see the see it the way we do, but we're not thieves and desperate characters, just a couple of souls that got into a corner where the things we did had to happen in order for us to survive. Wow. Um, okay. Not taking much
0: responsibility there
1: for no, her No, not so much. Not so much. So as as, Walter is healing up a little bit, they did hide out for a few days. And then they drove to Martins Ferry, Ohio, to switch cars again. They got a car from a friend. From there, they went to Charleston, West Virginia, where they robbed a gas station. Okay. And then they went on to Louisville, Kentucky. So while in Louisville, that's where they see a newspaper headline and realize that they had killed a police officer. Oh, they didn't realize it until then. They didn't know they killed him. They knew they shot him. Oh. But not until they're in Louisville do they realize that they had killed him. So then they panicked, and Mm. they started just driving aimlessly. They went to Greensburg, Pennsylvania, Toledo and Cincinnati, Ohio, and then to Uniontown, Pennsylvania, to Pittsburgh. At this point, Irene was dressing as a boy. She would... (laughs) But they're trying to hide the fact that she's a woman so that people aren't looking for them. Yeah, if, I just, I'm just i just always amused by that. I don't know why. It just is, is... Cross-dressing is the answer, obviously. Yeah. If they drove through a town, she would lay down on the seat so it looked like there was no passenger, just a single gentleman driving the car. And I, I actually I found this fun fact in my research, nothing to do with the story, but Irene has another brother, Ed that had broken out of jail and killed a police officer as well. So it's a, kind of a family thing, I guess. Yeah,
0: yeah. Apple tree, something along yeah, those something, lines. Something. Or a couple apples, maybe, side by
1: side. <laughs>
0: a lot wow. of bad apples in that tree.
1: That's that's a bad family legacy. That's, yeah, that's a bad family trait. So now it's, it's January 4th, and Irene is, she's gotten sick. Both Irene and Walter were very tired, very hungry. They've been... On the lam and trying to hide and driving almost nonstop because they're afraid of being found out. So as they neared a pharmacy in St. Louis to get medicine, a police officer sees them and blew his whistle. Officer Bill Keisling approached the car at 10.45 p.m. saying, buddy, I want to question you. So Glenn pulls a gun and fires at his heart. Oh, no, That you're making it worse. It went through his coat sleeve, so thankfully, Walter Glenn is a very bad shot. Mm-hmm. Um, the officer grabbed Glenn out of the car, locked his arm around him. As Glenn was going down, he shot twice more and only hit the officer's coattails. So this is very cartoony and all the misses that we're getting. It's its like, uh, like the very Star Wars-esque <laughs> Stormtrooper shooting. Yeah, yeah, these are... Glenn is the original stormtrooper. Walter Glenn is the original stormtrooper. That is what we've learned.
0: And then everybody else just has very holy clothes and hats and not in the religious way.
1: So then Irene jumps out of the car with a gun, gets between the officer and Walter Glenn, points the gun in the officer's face. Officer goes, drop it, kid. And Irene goes, you shot my man, you motherfucker, and knocked the gun out of his hand. <laughs> I didn't even, I mean, I guess I kind of knew they used that word back then, but holy hell. That, that was in quotes. You shot my man, you motherfucker. Wow. <laughs> yes, yeah. I, I didn't huh. know they used that language then either, but that's what it was in quotes, and it was amazing. So the officer, now he's he's lost his gun because Irene knocked it out of his hand. Turns and runs away, as you do. Mm. Uh, and he's blowing his whistle the whole time, and I feel like a panicked gym teacher, like, ah! <laughs> panicked gym teacher,
0: I love it.
1: So, the, the kids, they're everywhere, I have no control over them. The dodgeballs, they're hitting me. ah, blow exactly. The whistle. exactly. So he's just blowing his whistle like a crazy person, and four other policemen quickly arrive on the scene. So Irene looks at, at Walter and goes, honey, it looks like we're on the wrong road. Let's give up. And so they get in the car and they speed away. And uh, she goes, still the wrong road. Let's turn right. And, like, jerks the car off onto a different street and they get away. It was amazing. Oh, my God. There's so much, like, drama. I feel like this is a movie. (laughs) So now they hide out for a few days. They they find a quiet place to lay low. It's, It's now January 13th, 1930. Somehow they made it the whole way to Florence, Arizona. Wow. And Sheriff Joe Chapman tried to arrest them. They didn't know what to do with Joe, so they kidnapped Joe. Oh, people are kidnapping a lot of cops. I mean, Brady got kidnapped, and Sheriff Joe's getting kidnapped. It's like a thing. It's a thing, yeah. So they didn't want to hurt him. They've they've shot enough police officers. So they just tied him up and took him with them because they didn't know what else to do. (laughs) And so they have a cop with them. They make it to Chandler, Arizona, and a group of deputies got together to try to get their sheriff back. And they wounded two more officers in that shootout. So then they f- they fled towards the mountains of Arizona, and they went off-road as a shortcut until their car overheated. Oh, no. So now their car is overheated. And they're off-road. And they're off-road, and so they continue to run on foot. So the next day. Wait, did they bring Sheriff Joe with them or not? Sheriff Joe was one of the ones wounded. Oh, okay. All right. Apparently. So I don't know if they just decided to shoot their own hostage or if one of the other cops (laughs) shot the hostage. I don't know. Oh, dear. Um, But anyway, Sheriff Joe got wounded. And so they're like, well, we can't make him run with us. Just leave him. (laughs) The motto of this couple is definitely ACAB. (laughs) It's amazing. So January 14th. There is a group of over 50 deputies, town folk, and cowboys after this pair. Oh,
0: we got a real-life posse! We got a
1: whole posse. Yes! Now Sheriff Charles Wright picked up their trail after they had shot Lee Wright and Joe Chapman. I'm I'm still not sure. I don't think they shot their own hostage. I really don't think they did. I think the cops shot the hostage and they're just, like, trying to blame it on them. But whatever. Yeah. That's just me. That, with, that's with, why yeah. there's not a whole lot of detail in that, I think. Yeah, it gets weirdly blurry about that when we have so many other very specific details. Mm, that's strange. Yeah, yeah. So I really feel like they shot their own guy. It was like, it was them. It wasn't us at all. I mean... It's
0: pretty easy to pin shooting a cop on people who are just basically shooting cops right,
1: left, center, in the nose, in the leg, in the (laughs) hat. But it feels like they're just very forthcoming with information when they did it. There was an eight-hour standoff as they're cornered in the desert, and finally Irene comes out. And she decides to try to encourage Walter Glenn to come out by grabbing her black V-neck dress and ripping it open. What? Exposing her perky, supple, milk-white breasts to the harsh sun. Oh my! Irene! She yelled, if you survive this, you're going to have a wild night with me. (gasps) Just as she gets this out, she gets shot. Somebody from the posse shot and grazed the side of her neck and she's standing there yelling with her tits out trying to get her lover out from behind a rock. And blood probably coming down from where she was grazed so it's it's quite the macabre scene. It's amazing. Oh my God. But I, I don't know if it was the boobs or the bullet Walter Glenn stood up and threw his gun down and I, I still don't know if it was because of Irene's like let's get it on baby or because she was shot.
0: I mean, it could even be 50-50. It
1: could be 50-50. We don't know. But anyway, he gives up too. I am. (laughs) This is outstanding.
0: I love it. This is amazing. I am, I'm, words, I don't have them. I've lost them.
1: So Tom was never arrested. They never found him. They believe that he was probably, maybe, killed in a shootout following a robbery in Texas. Okay. But that was in Texas. And I guess they didn't talk to the Texas cops. And they're like, "You, we might have killed them. I don't know. We kill a lot of people that rob stores here. We don't bother getting names because they're dead. Yeah. Yeah. So um, they, he could have been arrested or he could have lived a quiet life to old age. Nobody knows about Tom. So the trial. 77 witnesses. Crowd control. Media. This was described as a complete feeding frenzy. It lasted nearly a year. Holy shit. So they were they were tried in Pennsylvania, the start of it all, and they were sentenced to death by electrocution. Irene was the first female to be executed this way in Pennsylvania. Oh my. Making making strides for women,
0: Irene. I suppose.
1: You go, girl. Yeah, she was she was electrocuted on February twenty-third, nineteen thirty-one, at seven oh five AM, wearing a gray dress of imitation silk with white collars and cuffs, beige silk stockings, and black satin slippers. Well, oh, yeah, they always I think
0: they do dress the people for our execution, or at least back then they did specifically, because there's always a lot of black and gray. And honestly. If I were going to the electric chair and I could choose my outfit, oh, I'd get flashy with it.
1: Well, that's not quite the end of the story, though. So um, her executioner said that she seemed particularly composed and fearless. Her son was there. Oh, what? Donnie? Donnie was was there. He would have been, what, six then? Seven. Seven. He was then seven when she passed. And she said to Donnie, I am going to die, my boy, but I am not afraid. Be a good boy and don't be afraid. Wow. And then after she died, Donnie was heard to remark, I'll bet my mom would make an awful nice angel. Oh, Donnie. Donnie actually grew up and, and lived a pretty good life, though. So he lied about his age, joined the military, eventually worked for NASA. Holy what? He helped put a man on the moon. Oh my God, this story, it just keeps coming at you. It keeps going. It keeps going. Yeah. So, so, uh, actually, in in the book that I used for um, one of my sources, it's uh, written by Irene's grandchild. It's called Family Secrets and Lies. Before Bonnie and Clyde, there was Grandma and Glenn. Um, And this was Donnie's child that wrote the book. Oh. so it was uh somebody that was very close to the family and did a lot of research to put this all together and so i thoroughly recommend if anyone's interested in this bonkers story to to absolutely i i would recommend
0: and then our sources are always in the show notes i'll put a link to the book in there with the sources
1: so wow. yeah that is the story well what happened to, to walter Oh, he was also electrocuted. Nobody okay. cares. Nobody cares about Walter. Nobody cares about Walter because Walter's a dick. <laughs> Walter Walter is not that interesting. Irene is definitely the more interesting character of these because, like, she she was like the mitochondria. She is the powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> yeah.
0: Damn, damn, Amber knocked my socks
1: off. And Irene-style knocked my shirt off. Dude, that had me. As soon as she, like, pulled her boobs out, I was like, come on, baby, we'll have a wild night. I'm just like, what the hell is... This isn't real life. This didn't happen. (laughs) Like, there's a lot of sources that say it did, but I'm still not completely convinced this wasn't, like, just a movie that somebody's like, this would make a great story. (laughs) (laughs) I'm shocked this isn't a
0: movie yet. It should be. It really should be. I'm casting it in my head right now. Oh, my God, Amber, that was fantastic. And it wasn't just the story. You told it so well. That was brilliantly done. I am just overcome with gratitude for just the amazingness of what you just did. <laughs> and also anxious because I have to follow that. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> it's okay. Don't be sorry. I did cut out a lot about Walter because I hate Walter. So sorry <laughs> if you guys liked Walter. He's not that impressive to me. Walter's a dick. We know Walter's. this. Alright,
0: so after that old-timey crimey, I am going to be telling Amber a new-timey crimey. This is about Lori Show, and we set our scene in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Okay. 1991. The hair is big, the outfits are neon the shoulder pads are, thankfully,
1: seeing their way out. So,
0: this <laughs> this starts off a little rough, I'm just going to let you know.
1: Well, yeah, as, as most 90s fashion does. Well, aside from fashion, too. <laughs> so,
0: Lori Show uh, was 16. She lived in a condo in East Lampeter Township with her mother, Hazel. She was an only child. Parents had divorced. She was said to be a nice girl who worked hard, wasn't necessarily big on socializing, wasn't out butterflying around, but she was well-liked by those around her. She did some tutoring. She went to church and Sunday school and enjoyed those things. A good kid. Sure. A good kid. She loved Penn State and had a room with teddy bears and pictures of her and her friends, the usual stuff, like when you're a teenager. She wanted to be a nurse Or maybe a hairstylist when she graduated in a few years. She had a couple different ideas about her future in her school pictures. She would have been a couple years older than I would have been at the time. But she had the exact same hair that I had a few years later. You can picture it. It's the perm with the bangs combo. Yeah, I remember that. Yes, yes. That's all I need to say. And the same type of uh, turtleneck sweater combo that you can think of from the early 90s. It's very much ingrained in our nineties kid minds, <laughs>
1: these things that we wore. That's that's the popular girls. I was I was a little bit too young for that.
0: I I think I wore them more like the, the turtleneck sweater combo more in like sixth grade. And it was kind of popular then, but I, I, I grew out of that. But I think I had a friend who wore them for quite a few years into the nineties <laughs> as I was growing up. Hide the hickeys. Because yeah, yeah, there's that. Turtlenecks were very handy for that, but every time I picture her, this friend from high school and middle school, I always picture her in that turtleneck sweater combo. (laughs) So, So yeah, on December 19th, Hazel Show got a phone call from the guidance counselor at Lori's school. She went to Conestoga Valley High School, and they wanted her to make an appointment the next day to talk about something that had happened in Lori's gym class. And they stressed that it had to be in person. We cannot handle this over the phone. You have to come down. So Hazel show set up an appointment for 7.30 a.m. the next morning at the high school. But very soon after that, the same person called back and they were like, whoops, uh, can we make it 7 a.m. at the junior high school instead? And Hazel show would later say that if they'd kept it the original time and place, she would have brought Hazel with her. Because if she's going to the high school, she may as well just give Lori a ride. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Lori told her mom, I don't even have gym this semester, so I don't know what the heck this could be about. She was completely befuddled. So, Friday, December 20th, 1991, Hazel left, and then Lori was home alone. Now, it was the last day of school before Christmas break... So Lori was getting ready for school. She was still in her sweats and drying her hair. And the poor sweetie was probably putting LA Looks in her perm and scrunching it, Mm -hmm. as we did. I still scrunch sometimes with some, like, sea salt. I have have curly hair. I've
1: never, ever had a perm, so.
0: Yeah, I had perms because I have stick straight hair. And my mother liked
1: to have things done to my hair, whether I wanted to or not. Yeah, that was that was not a thing in my world. If I wanted poofy hair, I didn't even need hairspray. I just had to brush it, and then I had poodle hair. It was amazing.
0: Well, I feel like we had so much less knowledge about how to deal with curly hair back then, and that extended to perms.
1: Yeah, I still don't know how to deal with my hair, honestly. Yeah,
0: the perms back then they were all like these frizzy messes, and everybody wanted to, their perm to look like like Meg Ryan. And when Harry met Sally, with when she has that like curly hair, I think it's in like the New Year's Eve scene. But they actually looked just, like, frizzy because nobody knew how to take care of it. And now we have, like, Curly Girl and, and a curly hair subreddit and all kinds of information about how to actually handle it. Nobody knew back then, don't brush your hair if you have curly hair or a perm. You just did what you did. So So she's getting ready for school and then came a knock at the door. Lori answered. There were two people at the door and then there was some kind of commotion A scream, a thump, and then after about six to eight minutes, a door slamming. And a neighbor reported those sounds and also reported seeing two people running away from the condo complex. Hazel came back home because she'd gone to the guidance counselor meeting and the guidance counselor was a no-show.
1: There was nobody there. So, okay, as a mother, if I get a call from the school... And then I asked my kid about it, and they're like, I don't even have gym class. I would immediately call the school. I wouldn't call that number back. I would call the school and be like, what is this about Mm -hmm. that you need me down there so damn bad? Like, she doesn't even have gym class. You got the wrong kid. Call somebody else. Yeah, it seems like there were a few
0: quiet alarm bells going off, but they weren't quite being heard, which is no fault of anybody's. I mean, you can only see these things in retrospect, when you're like, oh, shit, should have done that. But
1: but back then, I think people were more trusting. Like, now we question everything. Especially in a smaller
0: town. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, Hazel came
0: back. Uh, before she went to the house, a neighbor actually told her about all the commotion in the house. So, now the red flags and the alarm bells and the ooga, it's all happening now. She noticed the door to the condo was open, ran inside ran up to Lori's room, found her daughter bleeding to death on the floor. Her throat had been slashed. In addition to the knife wounds, she had a rope tied around her neck. Hazel was able to hold her daughter as she died, and they had a final conversation. Hazel, show, would later recount. I said, honey, I'm so sorry. It was a setup. Who did this to you? She said, Michelle did it. Michelle. Michelle. And then she said, love you, love you, love you, love you. I told her God was going to take care of her, and I just held her. Yeah, it is absolutely, my heart just splits in two reading this and thinking about, I mean, I'm not a mother, but I can definitely empathize with how one would feel with a loved one, and especially someone so
1: young and innocent. I would honestly go on a rage killing. I would be tempted to as well, Yeah. Yeah, like that. I would probably just mentally break and then just kill everybody. Yeah. So don't ever go after my kids, folks, or rage killing. There you go. Now you know the consequences.
0: So uh, if it if it happens and you're rage killed, you can't say you didn't know. I told you. No, <laughs> Hazel had no doubt exactly who Lori was referring to when she said Michelle did it. Michelle, Michelle. Let's rewind a little bit. July 1991, so about five months earlier, Lori, she had hung out a bit with a guy named Lawrence Butch Yunkin. We're going to call him Butch from here on out, because of course we are. He was 20. He was a high school dropout who worked at a lumberyard and had exactly the bleach bond mullet you're picturing right now. Oh, wonderful. Good, because that's what I had in my head as soon as you said Butch. Yeah, even uh, shaved a little bit on the sides above the ears. Maybe in a zigzag pattern. (laughs) There might have been, yeah. So Butch had very recently been left by his live-in girlfriend, Lisa Michelle Lambert. She was 19, and she did go by both Lisa and Michelle. I mean... It's not a one-to-one comparison, but I'm known by my family as Kristen and by most of the rest of the world as Christy. So, I mean, I can see it. And sometimes people will go by their middle name for yeah. some people and family might call them by their first name because they it's what they grew up with. Yeah. So And she had also dropped out of high school. No shade to people who drop out of high school. You know, like sometimes you just got to figure that shit out when you're yeah. young. It's It's a rough time when you're in your teen years. And especially, you know, she came from a lower-income family. There's, well, there's and, a lot and that's
1: out. actually, like, really popular for the lower-income uh, families is sometimes you have to drop out to work and make money for your family. Very much so, yes. Um, and it, it's thankfully less and less now, but it used to be, I mean, back in the early 1900s, because we do a lot of, of history, these people go to school till they're 12, and then they got to work. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so
0: now with uh with Butch and Lori, they hung out a couple times it was later referred to as dates but Laurie only ever thought of it as just hanging out and he allegedly raped her while they were hanging out these two times one of the the, the wow. second of the two times i'm using the allegedly the a word there because there was never a trial as far as i can tell so yeah And also, he was reportedly abusive to Lisa Michelle. Shocking. Generally a mullet-wearing scumbag. Mullet-wearing scumbag Butch. Mm Mm-hmm. That's right. Should be on his birth certificate. In Lisa Michelle's later claims, she would say that Butch controlled what she wore, wouldn't let her learn to drive, also raped her, and in addition, he liked to cut his face. And then hang over her and drip blood on her while they were in bed?
1: Blood fetish is a thing.
0: That's, uh, that's, I'm going to go with that's something is how I'm going to describe that. That is
1: something. No, but but she's actually pretty lucky that he didn't get off on cutting her. That's at least, it's a very dim light in
0: this tunnel. But it's it's a light. I'll take whatever light I can get. Exactly. It's barely a (laughs) flickering candle, but it's all we got. So we're going to take it. Your eyes will adjust. Yeah. (laughs) So they had that little break. Butch and Lori hung out a few times. Butch raped Lori, allegedly. And then he and Lisa Michelle got back together. And it turned out that Lisa Michelle was pregnant. Of course she was. Of course she was. So Lisa Michelle seemed to get fixated on whatever relationship, and I'm putting that word in serious air quotes, she imagined... Butch and Lori had for those two dates. And she started stalking and harassing the crap out of Lori. Lori had a part-time job. I want you to guess where she had a part-time job, and I'm going to give you this clue. Peak 90s fashion. Was it Sun? Mm, that's more late 90s. This is early 90s.
1: I was very little. Platform shoes. Deb? Yes! Oh my gosh. (laughs) I love Deb. I bought all my platform shoes there. I know I bought at least one prom dress, if not two there. I might have actually bought a prom dress there. Yeah. Yeah. I felt so super nostalgic for the 90s when I found out that she had a job at Deb. That's amazing. Yeah. I had, I got my platform sneakers from there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: So Lori would be working at Deb And up at the mall, of course. Mm -hmm. Lisa Michelle would show up there and verbally abuse her. Would even bring Butch and others along just for fun. Just imagine your alleged rapist showing up with his pregnant girlfriend to scream obscenities at you at work. That's... How were they not escorted out and banned from the mall? I don't know. Maybe it's small mall didn't have a security guard. I mean, I'm just guessing there, but I we mean, didn't. We're a
1: small town and our mall is dead and I'm pretty sure we still have security
0: guards. But my mall in the 90s, I never saw a security guard there. My hometown mall. And it was a much smaller than our mall here. Our, our mall here is at least, it's two floors. And completely empty. It's completely empty <laughs> now, but like back in the 90s, it would have been jumping. And our our mall back home, you could see one end of it from the other, and it was just one floor. Fair enough. Lisa Michelle was absolutely obsessed. She would call the shows and just scream down the phone at Lori until they changed their phone number to try to stop the harassment. Wow. And then in July of 1991, later, towards the end of the month, she came up with her big plan and was trying to get some friends in on it. She was going to get Lori out of her house, chop off her hair... And then tie her to a pole and leave her there. That was her big scheme. It didn't work out at all because some of the friends she was trying to pull into this scheme actually went to Lori and gave her the heads up. So at least there's that. And the next month, Hazel and Lori's show were out shopping when Lisa Michelle, she was stalking Lori. So she found her and she started screaming obscenities at Lori including um, yelling at her that Lori and Butch had had sex while they quote-unquote dated. And Hazel stepped in here and she was like, uh, no, he raped her. And if you keep this shit up, we'll report you to the police just like we did with him. But the thing is, is at the time, there wasn't any actual violence here and there was no law against stalking in Pennsylvania. really. In most of the country, there was nothing against stalking. You could stalk all you wanted. It was a stalk But I feel like it would still be harassment. Were there laws against harassment? That's hard to find, but I don't think there was enough in place to make it anything. And I'm just going to guess 1991, Pennsylvania, probably not.
1: Yeah, true. So we were still working on sexual harassment being a yeah. thing we were against. See, like, I would have just called the cops every time she showed up. Just call the cops over and over and over again, and eventually maybe you'll get a PFA. They did call the police sometimes when things seemed
0: like they were going to get violent or did get violent. There was actual violence there. And they called the cops. The cops would just show up and be like, well, the supposed perpetrators have left the scene, so can't do anything. I guess once people are gone after a crime, the crime hasn't happened. It's a tree that has fallen in the woods. Nobody was there to see it. I really wish that were the case because I would do so many more crimes. I know, right? Right so many banks would be robbed so many things would be I'm not there down. anymore it certainly wasn't me <laughs> yeah, right in the fall there is a physical confrontation between Lisa Michelle and Lori Lisa got pretty vicious she actually beat Lori's head against a parked truck
1: hmm
0: yes and there was also a death threat made by Lisa Michelle during this incident it was one of those vague ones where she was like my friends are going to take care of you so you know, if if they really wanted, and they probably did, the cops could misinterpret that intentionally as well. They're just going to bring you some tea and cookies, and mm-hmm. maybe you know, fill out some some paperwork that you need done. Probably,
1: yeah. They're they're going they're going to do your homework for you, and, yeah. and feed you food. They'll maybe they'll do your chores. They'll load the dishwasher, like like nice people. So yeah,
0: they'll take care of you. They'll give you a hug when they're done, and then they'll leave. And another thing is. Keep in mind, Lisa Michelle was pregnant. It's hard to fight back against a pregnant bully. And Lisa Michelle definitely liked to use that to her advantage. You know, anytime Lori so much as made a move towards her
1: in self-defense, Lisa Michelle would be like, you're killing my baby! It's insane. And maybe you shouldn't get in a physical altercation while you're pregnant because, like... Yeah, you literally started
0: this and you're the pregnant one, so that's on you, bitch. Is what I have to Obviously, say.
1: Obviously the solution here is just to aim for a throat so you don't hurt the baby.
0: And I'd like to say, raise your hand if you've ever been personally victimized by Lisa Michelle Lampert, because this is definitely like beyond mean girls. <laughs> this is we're getting into Heather's territory, minus yeah. the croquet, and also minus the shoulder pads, thankfully, for the most part. The Hazel show, she was she She, as my mother would have said in that same time period, had had it up to here. Yes. (laughs) And she went straight to the cops. She got a simple assault charge filed, but it took weeks. This was in the fall. The cops didn't start investigating until December 16th. I mean, at least a month, if not more, has passed. We don't have the exact date of the simple assault occurring, but Jesus. So the police... Uh, they do start looking around that time for Lisa Michelle Lambert. And uh, Lisa Michelle found out that the shows were looking to prosecute, that if this came down to actual charges, and they would very willingly participate in any case against her. So on December 19th, Lisa Michelle went to Kmart. She bought rope and two black knit hats. She didn't need to buy a knife because she had kitchen knives at home. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then the very next day, Lori was brutally murdered, as we talked about at the very beginning of this particular saga. The murder was in the papers, and of course, it's the early 90s, so the very first flurry of rumors that just rustles through the town is, satanic ritual, satanic ritual, it must have been a satanic ritual, because the satanic panic was still in force at that point.
1: Still, like, she called Satan, Satan slit her throat. Like, what? Any any violent crime,
0: people were so immersed in this idea that Satanism was destroying everything and people were performing satanic rituals left and right in your small town. So any violent crime that happened, people would immediately ascribe it to satanic ritual.
1: I really wish they would have made a movie about that similar, like, Reefer Madness. I think I would enjoy it. That
0: sounds like it would be very entertaining, yes. The the Reefer Madness style, but with Satanic Panic? Yeah, yeah. I
1: like it. Yeah. Let's make a movie. We're going to make movies about a lot of tonight's <laughs> podcasts.
0: Yes, we are. We're, we're going to start our own production company.
1: And Let us know if you want to send us money. We'll make movies. Absolutely. Chris Evans, you in? <laughs> any of the Chris's, really. Really, any of the Chris's would Hemsworth. Be we'll take a Pratt. <laughs> Pr- Pratt, Pratt, Pratt.
0: So, now getting more serious, the murder was okay, beyond the throat slashing. It was pretty brutal altogether, all around. The uh, the medical examiner said that the throat slashing was at least three strokes with the knife. Her head was bruised from blunt force, which they found out was the, the blunt end of the knife being pounded on her head. She had been stabbed three times in the back. One of those punctured the lung, had been stabbed in the thigh, and then... That one went into the pelvis. Her hands were peppered with cuts, about 21 of them, probably defensively Trying to
1: fight away. Exactly.
0: It took just hours after the murder for police to bring in three people for questioning in the case. Lisa Michelle Lambert, Butch Youngkin, and also 17-year-old Tabitha Buck. And then they were all arrested in the same place where they were doing... A group activity together, and I want you to guess where in the early 90s you've just committed a murder and you want to go have some fun. Where do you go? What what group activity? Sex, I would assume. Mm, not that one. It's in a public
1: place. Uh, the arcade. Mmm. Pins.
0: Bowling? Bowling! Really? They went bowling. They were at the Garden Spot Bowling Center located in Strasbourg. Like,
1: I could understand an orgy.
0: I did not (laughs) expect bowling. That could have happened and we just don't know about it, but that's where they were arrested. was a real
1: fast orgy.
0: They like to spend a lot of time there. They'd gone bowling actually before going to murder Lori's show, or it was like 7 a.m., so maybe the night before, unless, unless that place opened real early for the early birds. There may have also been a stop at maybe Lisa Michelle's grandma's house between the murder and the bowling, because... Lisa Michelle would later have some correspondence with Butch that mentioned, you know, you were so happy at Grandma's house afterwards. So I just surmised from that yeah. that she was talking about her own grandmother and that they went to her grandmother's house. Now, uh, the story, as later described by a judge in a summary, Lambert admitted that it was her idea to go to Sho's apartment because she wanted to talk to Show. According to Lambert's statement, Tabitha Buck went alone to knock on Sho's door because Sho's mother knew Lambert. Lambert went into the apartment, and she heard someone answer, and the door shut. And she found Buck, Tabitha Buck, struggling with Sho. Buck attacked Sho with a knife, Lambert told police, and she, quote, just stood there because she was so scared. Eventually, Lambert said she couldn't look anymore and turned away. All three of them were charged with murder and conspiracy. By the way, that story is going to change. I should. Oh, I, I'm a sure. A couple of, it. of times, charged with murder and conspiracy, and would be charged as adults. Which, nineteen twenty, okay, Tabitha Buck was seventeen, so she's she's the one where that that that's a question, you know, or would come to be a question. This didn't really come as much of a shock to Lisa Michelle's Pierce. Uh, the quote from one classmate when asked whether Lambert seemed the murdery type was, oh, yeah, I thought she could do it.
1: Yeah, yeah. She, well, no, she obviously, like, with her obsessiveness and the behaviors that she's been displaying, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she was ramping
0: up to this all along. Lori show was buried on December 23rd in her favorite Penn State sweatshirt. Right
1: before Christmas.
0: Right before Christmas. There was a freezing rain coming down, but that did not stop over 600 of her classmates who came to pay their respects and say their farewells. The headstone reads, our beloved and beautiful daughter and granddaughter. Meanwhile, back on the case, Butch flipped. He got a deal wherein he would testify against Lisa Michelle and Tabitha and plead guilty to third-degree murder. At first, he was supposed to get one year for this, but that would change for reasons. The DA said he was going to go for the death penalty for both Lisa Michelle and Tabitha. It's harder now, I guess, to get a death penalty case on a minor, but it's still it still could happen even in the, two, the 2000s. The law Seven, changed.
1: 17 is, I mean, that's pretty close to being 18. And if 18's an adult, then 17's, I mean. I
0: mean, it's close, but I still do have problems with charging people as adults. Because it feels like the law of you're not an adult until you're 18 is only blurry there. It's not blurry If you're trying to buy cigarettes, it's not blurry. If you're trying to buy porn, it's not blurry. If you're trying to join the army. But yet when it comes to crime, suddenly it becomes blurry. And that's what bothers me, is I feel like if it's going to be hard and fast everywhere else in the law, and I realize that those are different things, but it should be hard and fast everywhere.
1: I would be totally fine if they got rid of age limits for buying alcohol, cigarettes, and joining the military. Because if you're old enough to fight for the military and fight for your country, you should be able to have whatever the fuck you want. Yeah, yeah. You want booze? Have booze.
0: Yeah, right? Yeah, the 18... Uh you can join the military, but 21 you can drink things seems kind of ridiculous. No, not
1: cool, they go hand in hand as a former yeah. military member. <laughs>
0: and I know, I know the history of that with Mothers Against Drunk Driving, pushing for the laws to be changed nationwide and, and trying to use highway funds against states. Like, there's a history there of how that change actually happened because it used to be different from state to state until it just became across the board with Mothers Against Drunk Driving, but it still seems like okay well why can you join the military and not drink that's stupid
1: well well okay but back to the the uh the tried as an adult thing you buying cigarettes and smoking them is not really hurting anybody except for maybe yourself but you murdering a person is is very very extreme like you've just stolen a life
0: exactly no I do agree with you on that there, there's definitely a a vast, vast difference between those two actions. It still feels like if we're going to have a standard,
1: we should keep it and adhere to it. I don't know. And, and not- I, I, I'm a big believer that rules are bullshit. So, yeah. um, I mean, if Tabitha did kill her at 17, then yeah, I, th- I think she should probably be tried as an adult. But anyway, continue the story. Let, tell me more about Tabitha. And pregnant bitch and mullet butch. About
0: (laughs) pregnant bitch and mullet butch. About uh, pregnant Lisa Michelle, that whole pregnancy thing posed a little bit of a problem for jail officials. They did end up releasing her just for a few hours to give birth in March. She had a baby girl, and then the baby girl was turned over to her parents. She tried to get a change of venue. That was denied then she made a motion for a trial by judge, and they said yes to that. So no jury was involved. So it seemed like that was a compromise where they were like, well, we're not going to send this out of town. It doesn't seem that extreme, but we will do this pretty rare thing of doing just a judge trial instead of a jury trial.
1: Well, because she's probably like, I've pissed off a lot of people in this town. There is that probably, yes. Yeah. I can
0: imagine. Meanwhile, Tabitha Buck was trying... To be tried as a juvenile, especially because of that death penalty possibility. Mm -hmm. And that I think you also have to factor in very strongly. In these times, when you could try somebody as a juvenile and still possibly give them the death penalty, you do still have to factor that in because then you're also, you have the possibility of another innocent death if you're not 100% right. Yeah. She's trying to get away from that death penalty thing, but... Lisa Michelle's trial is ongoing at that point in time, and I think that put a little wrench into her works as far as that's concerned because, of course, Lisa Michelle's lawyers were trying to implicate Tabitha as the main actor in the murder. So one of the biggest pieces of testimony that was meant to support this was the witness that testified that they had seen two letters written in Lori Show's blood And they were supposedly written by Lori in her last moments. T.B. Tabitha Buck. Anybody could. It could be somebody knelt to pick something up and their fingers scrawled in the blood. It could be anything. That,
1: it doesn't. Well, and also, her mother was holding her. Yes. And said, Michelle. Yeah, yeah.
0: Lori did say, Michelle. There were questions later. As to whether Lori would have actually been able to speak with her throat slash like that. I did think of that. Yeah, it went back and forth. It was, over the years, honestly, it was the case of the dueling medical experts. Some saying, yes, at least least with enough volume for somebody very close to her to hear, like at a whisper. And some saying, absolutely not. So it was definitely a question. Now, this is from the Herald-Journal. At Michelle's trial, a parade of teen witnesses documented her rising hatred. Her plan to first scare Lori, then hurt her, then slit her throat. But none had moved to intervene besides occasionally warning Lori. Lisa Michelle took the stand. I do love it when the defendant actually takes a stand. It's rare enough, and it's not well advised in most cases. She did say that, sure, she had a little grudge against Lori, but her new story now, as I said, the story would change, was that the whole thing was just a
1: prank that went wrong. Sure it was. Yeah, everyone believes that. I bring knives to pranks all the time. Me too. She said that she and Tabitha were just going to
0: cut Lori's hair with a knife somehow instead of just grabbing a handy pair of scissors, because, again, that makes sense. And Tabitha just lost her shit and killed Lori. Because Mm -hmm. we all know Tabitha is the one with the documented rage against Lori. Butch, who claimed to only be the getaway driver, testified that the day of the murder, the two young women took showers after whatever had transpired at the show house, but he didn't know at that point that Lori's show was dead. Lisa Michelle's story at that point again implicated Tabitha Buck. She's like, a horrible accident happened. They were wrestling. This is what she told Butch. She said, Tabitha was wrestling with Lori, like this is fun or something. And there was a horrible accident. And Tabitha super accidentally stabbed Lori in the back. And since she was in such pain... We were like, well, probably should slit her throat out of mercy instead of calling 911 or anything. And so we were such nice people
1: that we did. Yeah, that's- stabbed her a couple more times, slit her throat, tied a rope around it too, just in case.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that, exactly. Yeah, that rope definitely feels like playful wrestling and not at all something you use to try to control someone. And Butch also provided a poem. That uh, Lambert Lisa Michelle had written in jail that described the murder, and I can't find it. It is nowhere. It is nowhere. Don't start looking now. You gotta listen to the rest of the story. You can. I'm still listening. I'm still listening, but I'm going to look. Okay, so here's the thing. You're going to find a poem. It's not the one that describes the murder. This was the poem. Lisa Michelle wrote this to Butch. January 16th, 1992. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Hickory dickory dock. I'll lick you stiff as a rock. When the clock strikes four, I'll shove you onto the floor and ride your fat hard cock. You'll feel me fast and tight and make me scream all through the night. I'll beg for more and more as you pull my hair and call me a whore. Wow, this meter is falling apart. And you ram me harder and harder until the morning light. And when you fall asleep, I'll still make you do me deep. And when you tiredly moan, I'll match you with a groan as you hurt me till I weep. And they brought this into court as an attempt to show that this was an abusive relationship because there was a lot of uh, violent imagery and language in that. Although I don't know if it proved their point, honestly. I do want to say I stated outright as I was making my notes for this, that I was not going to read that poem. And then Amber knocked it out of the park with her old timey crammy. So I was like, well, I got to bring, <laughs> I got to come in all guns blazing. So horrible poetry written in jail. Here we go. And yeah, the, the poem, that's the one you find. The Hickory Dickory Dock one, when you, you try to find anything with Lisa Michelle Lampert and poem. And I've looked everywhere and it drove me crazy. So... It's verdict time. We don't have a jury, so we don't have any deliberation time. We just have the judge coming back with a guilty verdict, and Lisa Michelle got a life sentence without parole. Stop looking. You're going to spoil yourself for the story. Okay. (laughs) So, uh, Tabitha's attempt to be tried as a juvenile did not fly. But they at least did revoke the possibility of the death penalty and approved her change of venue request Because at that point, Lisa Michelle's trial had been such a just blazing headline in every paper in the media that, yeah, it was going to be difficult to yeah. find a jury. And they weren't going to give her a judge trial. so And the jury in Tabitha's trial came back with a guilty verdict for second degree murder. And she too got life in prison with no parole. Second degree murder—you don't see life in prison without parole as often, at least not
1: these That, days, that I don't seems
0: think. a little weird. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So then there were appeals. Both of them were just appeal crazy, which is—they're right. They submitted all kinds of appeals. The courts denied all of Tabitha's, but Lisa Michelle was kind of a different story. It got weird. In nineteen ninety-seven, she had a habeas corpus hearing with U.S. District Judge Stuart Dalzell presiding. And her deal with this whole hearing was that there was all kinds of misconduct with the evidence, enough that it basically made for a conspiracy of the cops against her, the reason being that she was claiming the police were doing this to silence her because they too had raped her. So there's that. And she also had a new story about the murder that implicated Tabitha and now Butch. Basically made her, made Lisa Michelle out to be a surprised and scared little girl who tried to help Lori while Tabitha was viciously murdering her, tried to save her from the attack, but the crazed Tabitha Buck and the controlling Butch Yunkin prevented her from doing so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Judge Dalzell ruled that she was, quote unquote, actually innocent, which is a state of being in the law. You, You have not guilty, you have guilty, and then you have actually innocent. And then he was like, this is all a setup by the police. There's prosecutorial misconduct here. And he actually said that the state could not hold a retrial. So that would just leave her free and clear.
1: Oh my God.
0: I know, right? She was released. She got 10 months of freedom before the Third Circuit Court of Appeals overturned Dalzell's ruling, and she's hustled right back to prison where all future appeals would be denied. Good. And she almost ended up having Dalzell presiding over her next appeal in 1998, which I'm sure would have been a shit show. He was insisting. He was like, I'm super impartial. I'm the most impartial person that ever partialed. And he did finally after some, I think after some public pressure and probably some private pressure, recused himself from the the case. So she did not get that little boon that that would have been. Because he probably would have been like, yeah, go walk free, murderer girl. So about her incarceration. She spent time in Cambridge Springs Correctional Facility in Pennsylvania. Uh, My great grandmother actually uh, had a farm. In Cambridge Springs, and I spent some weeks there over my childhood during summers, going to Bible school.
1: And Which is way better than prison. It's way better than prison. But, but also kind of the same thing.
0: Only marginally, yes. Only marginally. Better. And then she ended up in a prison in Clinton, New Jersey, and then in Baylor, Delaware, and then in Framingham, Massachusetts, where she still is. Now, the thing is, she did have... Some abuse from guards, sexual abuse. In 1996, a prison guard was convicted of aggravated and decent assault against her at Cambridge Springs Prison Correctional hmm. Facility. He was named James Eicher. He would spend two years in prison for that. She filed a civil suit against the state in 2007, and the settlement terms got her moved up to Framingham. She also got $35,000 which would pay for court costs, restitution, and then anything left after that went to care for the daughter that she'd had with Butch. Oh, I was actually going to guess cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of toilet wine? She did get a degree from Boston University and graduated with honors during her incarceration. She had nothing else to do but study. Yeah, I know. You, you do have a lot of time on your hands. Uh, in 2019... It feels weird to say that on this show. Yeah. On a search site for Massachusetts inmates, I did find this post that was seeking help finding her. I am looking for Lisa Michelle Lampert, incarcerated at Framingham. Prior to that, she was in Clinton, New Jersey, and before that, Delaware. I am her spouse. I have not spoken to her in a decade. I don't recall her number, but it is very important that, important that she reach me. If you can, please help. And the... Person who left that post, signed it, Trisha Perez. Huh. Yeah. She is 49 now, has exhausted all of her appeals. She's going to be in there until she dies. Butch, like I said, that one year deal didn't quite work out because he was said to have committed some perjury. In his testimony for the state. Shocking. I know, right? I still don't know exactly what the perjury was, what he said that was a lie, but probably, I'm sure there were plenty in there. And so he ended up with 10 to 20. He was released on probation in 2003. After 12 years behind bars. And his probation ended in 2011. When he was released uh, on probation, he went right back to bowling at Garden Spot Bowling. And kept bowling there until it burned down in 2011, the same year that his probation ended. So, And that uh, probation ended, there must have been some sort of reason for this, but it, end, it ended on the 20th anniversary of the murder. Oh. If, if that wasn't... That's yucky. If that's not for some administrative reason, that hurts. That is painful. Now, Tabitha. She was imprisoned in Muncie State Prison. And then in 2017, the Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional to give life sentences with no parole for people convicted as juveniles, which meant that she got a resentencing and could get parole. It was now available to her. She was resentenced to 28 years to life. And in 2019, she was granted parole. She's said to be probably in Oregon. That's where her family came from before moving to Lancaster. She actually had not been in Pennsylvania very long when all this happened. She was fairly new to the kind of friend group. So that's her experience with Pennsylvania. Probably not great. No. (laughs) And uh, so when she was paroled, it was too late to catch the made-for-TV movie, The Stalking of Lori Show, also titled Rivals, that came out in 2000. It had Sally Jesse Raphael as one of the executive producers, and that means it was exactly as trashy as you're expecting. Wow. Premiered on the USA Network. That whole paragraph is the most 90s thing I've ever yep. said. It happened in 2000, and it's still the most 90s the thing, I've thing, thing, thing I've ever said. The
1: only thing you could you could make it more 90s with is it was starring um, Tiffany Thiessen and Brian Austin Green. Oh my gosh, I wish. It was like somebody who had been on The Bold and the Beautiful,
0: and... Really the only person I kind of recognized was Hazel Show, Laurie's mother, was played by the actress who played Dawson's mother on Dawson's Creek. Oh, okay. So I recognized her and also probably the only good acting. <laughs> it cut this got super dragged by the critics and there is nothing, nothing in this world that I love more than a critic just letting the acid drip right off their tongue onto the page. I live for that. So this is from a Sun Sentinel review by Tom Yiha. It's titled Trash In, Trash Out. And keeping in mind uh, Sally Jesse Raphael. So that's the Raphael referred yes. to here. The stalking of Lori's show is in keeping with Raphael's M.O. The film gratuitously depicts rape, a kicking, screaming catfight, sadism and bondage, and a ghoulish recreation of a grisly murder. USA must be reserving bestiality for next month. However, all these sordid episodes are so ineptly portrayed, even mouth-breathers won't be titillated. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's the acid. The acid, I love it. A little more serious criticism we have here from Laura Fries in Variety. If the stalking of Lori show weren't based on a true headline horror, it would probably be called Killer Prom Queen and would be written off as pure camp. As it stands, not only is stalking a disservice to viewers, but also to the memories of the victims involved in the tragic tale so badly represented here. And I did find it on YouTube, full movie from the VHS. Uh, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. I did, did not have the patience for more than two minutes, and I just skipped through a little bit to see if I could find anything interesting. And I think, I think it goes beyond the runtime and either starts again or starts another movie. I'm not sure because it's longer than the actual runtime by like half an hour. But I do have to say this one scene that I caught just before the murder when the three uh, defendants are in a truck together. Lisa Michelle and Butch have pulled up and Tabitha has hopped in. They hand Tabitha a bag and it's got their murder implements in it. She pulls out the rope and she practically purrs, cool. And then she pulls out the butcher knife and she goes, So cool.
1: (laughs) And it is so horrifying.
0: It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. You really gotta
1: There was definitely an orgy before the bowling.
0: Oh, there's definitely hints of that throughout. But that's in the movie, that's not in real life. But there's there's definitely hints of that throughout the movie, and they really they really love they have this almost fetish with Lisa Michelle's character and lipstick. And have her show up to trial in this skimpy white dress and lipstick that's overdrawn on her lips that are already plump enough, and it's weird. And I I don't even know. So, but it's very
1: very. <sighs> I don't know how I feel about Tabitha. Like, part of me feels bad for her that she just fell in with like the wrong crowd. I feel very much that way. I don't think Tabitha really participated much.
0: First of all, we only know if they're really being one knife yes that i'm aware of and and one i don't crazy think lori wanted, wanted lori dead yeah and i don't think lisa michelle was super into sharing <laughs> so i imagine she probably did all the dirty work here but that's just conjecture and uh oh hey rampant speculation so i don't know but yeah. i i do feel like tabitha did just get kind of like yanked into this and peer pressure and Needing to fit in, and you're in a new
1: place. Part of me is like, okay, so, yeah, I'll bully this girl with you. Yeah. And I'll call her mom and get her out of the house, and then we'll go beat her up. Yeah. Okay, I'm in. And then, like, she pulls out a knife, and it's like, oh, my God, you crazy bitch. Like, <laughs> yeah, I kind of imagine it being that
0: way. Like, she never really took a lot of what Lisa Michelle said whenever she was talking about wanting to slip Lori's throat. She never really took it seriously. Until the moment when she was like, ooh, shit, I should have taken this seriously. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, yeah. Now, she may have missed the movie, although she can find it on YouTube. But if she wanted, Tabitha could still get her hands on Lisa Michelle Lampert's 2016 book. Uh, Love, Murder, and Corruption in Lancaster County, My Story. Written with co-author and attorney Dave Brown, who I don't know how he got roped into this. but jobs. Well, I mean, she's in prison, but uh, conjugal? Mm -hmm. Original draft was 800 pages long, and they managed to cut it to around 400 at the publisher's request. And then Dave Brown, the publisher, and several co-defendants whose names appear in the acknowledgments, but not Lisa Michelle... Uh, are being sued by two men who were East Lampeter police officers at the time because she repeats her accusations about rape and a subsequent framing by the police in the book. As far as I can tell, that case is still ongoing. I don't think there's been any recent movement in it. It happened, I think it started in 2017. It did start in 2017 and no word anywhere on its progress. And I immediately, my antenna kind of went up when I was looking at the description of the book, because it said that the alleged rape by the police officers happened in June 1991, and the baby was born in March 1992, but there was a paternity test, and Butch is the father, 99.98%-ish, you know? So, uh, to end on a high note, as much as we can from this, Hazel's show, as well as Lori's father, so Hazel's ex-husband, and their friends and family decided after Lori's death that they had a mission. And that mission was to get actual anti-stalking legislation enacted in Pennsylvania. So they circulated petitions, they gave talks around Central PA, and in 1993, they got new legislation against stalking introduced and passed. Awesome. Yes. So actual progress made that will help future victims and that is that is something, and that's the best we can hope for in a terrible case like this. So yeah, good so,
1: job, Hazel. Yes,
0: good job, Hazel, and and Hazel's ex husband, whose name I forgot to write down, and friends, and so on. So yeah, uh, that is the uh, very tragic tale of Lori's Show and the the murder and stalking and tragic right down to the horrifying TV movie that happened. I can only imagine being. The parent, or friend, or anything of a murder victim, yeah, and having to see that that made-for-TV bullshit come out, and just even knowing that it exists—you don't even have to watch it; just knowing it—it it exists is terrible enough. So yeah, well, I don't think we have a lot of these cases that they have in common to discuss. Both Pennsylvania and both some some batshit stuff. There's that. So there's some bonkers
1: stuff. There's, bonkers stuff. Yes. uh, Michelle seems like a flippin' catch. Oh, my
0: God. Right? I was just staggered when I read that she was released. I was
1: like, what the I don't even care that it's only 10 months. This judge is off his rocker. I am just so happy that Michelle's child gets to grow up without her.
0: Yes. And it has grown up. Yeah. That was 1992. We're recording this in 2021, late 20s, that that, that daughter is, who's, don't know her name, and that's fine. She She should grow up in anonymity and live her life in anonymity without this following her around, because we shouldn't have to, we shouldn't have to atone for our parents' sins, you know? Oh, God. Yeah. (laughs) She wasn't even born yet when this happened. She She was nothing to do with it. She was present at the murder in a way. But wasn't born yet. Yeah. Eyewitness crazy. testimonial. Well, I guess we do both have a child at the scene of the crime. Yep. In a in a way. We both <laughs> have a child at the scene of the crime. There is a commonality there. Yeah, we'll have more commonalities to talk about and differences and stuff when it's more related to a specific type of crime, but we really wanted to do Pennsylvania. Just to, you know, give a little homage to our area. And down home. Down home, yeah. So so I think, I think we're good to go on discussion. But if you guys, you know, if our listeners have anything to tell us or any interesting discussion questions you want to ask, you can do that on our social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Old Timey Crimey all across the board. Putting up lots of media related to the cases we talk about each week. And so, you know, come over there and take a look and immerse yourself, make it a multimedia experience. And there's that. Of course, there's our Patreon that we talked about a little bit at the top of the episode, patreon.com slash $5 will get you four bonus episodes, one every week where one of us tells the other about a crime they don't know about. And then also at the end of the month, our extra extra, which is our mega bonus episode. Mega bonus! Yes! Where we do something a little different every every month, and it veers away a little bit. Sometimes we let ourselves get into maybe the 60s or 70s. Every once in a while, there's a miscommunication, and we end up in the 90s or the 2000s, and that's fine. We make stuff up as we go. And we also do themes, like, you know, uh, badass pirate bitches and stuff like that, so... It's going to be a really great episode this month. And yeah, that's only five bucks a month and you get all that extra content plus the over 80 Old Tiny Crimeys that are already there. And a shout out at the end of the show, which you can also get without the bonus episodes if you send us any amount of money at oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com via PayPal. There's also our Redbubble where you can buy merch, redbubble.com slash oldtimeycrimey. All of these links are in the show notes. I don't think I need to say that, but just in case... And so you can buy, you know, like t-shirts and mugs and shower curtains and laptop sleeves, whatever. Pretty much whatever you want. Exactly. Whatever strikes your fancy. So, um, I probably have more bullshit, but once again, I can't remember. it. also it's my turn to have to pee. So what you doing this week, Amber? Uh
1: working a whole lot. And that's pretty much all I have on my plate. Well, at least you, you finished off your, your schooling. I did. I, I graduated. Graduated. You are, you are gradually Yes, I did. I finally finished my finals and I am done, done, done. Hooray! Hooray! What are you doing this week?
0: Um, well, I am working on a new cross-stitch project that's going to be a present for somebody who doesn't know they're getting it yet. And so I designed it last night. I need to do a little bit of of work, kind of tidying it up. I got a little feedback from our friend Beast when I said... (laughs) justified feedback, and I appreciated it. This is why I posted it. So, you know, like, to help me figure out if I needed to fix it. But yeah, I'm going to start working on that cross-stitch. It's going to be funny, and I cannot wait to give it to its intended recipient. So I'll be working on that. And also, of course, doing a lot of old-timey, crimey stuff. I feel like there's something else. I might start volunteering for the Johnstown Visitors Bureau or whatever it is. They had a thing on Facebook last week, and I was like, I might throw, like, a half-day every week at them, because, I mean, it's like anybody with knowledge of the local area, and I'm just like, well, I have a story that was published that's set during the Johnstown flood. That is true. I think I'm good on that front, so I could help out there, yeah. So I might do that. I'm going to email people to see. And yeah, that's all I can really uh, think of. So yeah, that is my week. And yeah, lots of old-timey, crammy stuff involved there, too. I should get back on the train with the tick by the decade. It's it's a stop and start thing. It's a little rough, so. So yeah, that was our show this week. And let us know what you think about the timing after timey. Again, we may or may not consider <laughs> any input we get, but we're eager to hear one way or the other what you think. Tell us. Tell us what you think. So yeah, uh, that is our show for the week. And we will see you next week. And thank you for listening to our filthy words, which, with that poem, man. They they got filthy. Living up to the filthy. Uh, And bye. Bye. My sources this week are Paul Smith on Fox 43, Keith Schweigert on Fox 43, Nikki T. Ingram on the Philadelphia Bar, Jed Reinert on Lancaster Online... Lambert V. Blackwell et al. on Judy Records, Murderpedia, Ted Anthony on the Herald Journal, Laura Fries on Variety, Tom Gisha on Sun Sentinel, Crystal Hawkins on True TV, and the Stalking of Laurie show on YouTube. Ooh.
1: My sources this week are Murderpedia.org, NCNewsOnline.com by Nancy Lowry, article from the Cumberland Evening Times, February 1931. FindAGrave.com book Family Secrets and Lies. Before Bonnie and Clyde, there was Grandma and Glenn by DJ Everett.
0: You could see nice. the Bonton from, from the Kmart. <clears throat> Actually, I think the Bonton was in the middle and the other end That's was in, fine. It's it's fine. It's, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> it doesn't matter. You're right. So